Schlob Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody. And once again, thank you for joining us live here on Golf Talk Live uh, this 6th of May. It's hard to believe, but we're already into the end of the first week of May. And this weekend, of course, is Mother's Day. So for uh, you husbands out there and uh, fathers and so on and and sons and whatnot, uh, make sure you get out there if you haven't already done so and and get a card and maybe some nice flowers or a special gift for your mother uh, they do so much for us, and uh, it's only right that we uh, honor them on this special day. So get out there and, and get your Mother's Day gift if you haven't done so already. Uh, it's this weekend. All right, I've got a great show for you this evening. Uh, I've got a special Coach's Corner panel with my good friend, uh, John Decker. He's going to be joining me here in just a moment. A little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by uh, Brandon Stukesbury. Uh, he is uh, currently now the head professional at uh, the historic uh, Metairie uh, Gol- Country Club, excuse me, uh, just outside of New Orleans in Louisiana. And he's going to be talking about his new book, The Putting Book, which he authored. Uh, you may recall uh, he came out with a previous book called The Wedge Book, uh, which was very, very uh, successful and ranked in Amazon's uh, top uh, uh, book list uh, for golf. And uh, he's come out with a new one this year uh, called The Putting Book. So he's going to be joining me in the second half of the show to talk a little bit about that. But uh, always excited to have you guys join me here live on the show. And just remember, you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live uh, if you're not able to tune in during the live broadcast and just scroll down to the uh, on-demand section and the, preview, uh, the auto-recorded version will be there uh, front and center. So you can check that a little bit later or any of the other shows that you might have missed. And at the end of the show, you'll hear some other great ways that you can tune into the program as well. All right, let me introduce my good friend and I'll bring him out here. John Decker, of course, is... Uh, now the Director of Instruction at the Medallion uh, Club in Columbus, Ohio. He's also a Senior Editor and Top 25 Instructor at Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, previously, he was a Head Instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando. And uh, he was also the uh, 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. Uh, and he authored his own book, uh, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, uh, which of course includes a Bible study. And he's also a public speaker, and uh, he also has a featured article called Fairways to Heaven. You'll see that in every issue of Golf Tips magazine, and it's uh, been very, very well received, and I'm glad to have him part of the the team there as one of the senior editors. So uh, without further ado, let me welcome to the show. John, welcome to uh, Coach's Corner. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Um, So, you know, we've we you and I have talked so many times, I think, both on and off the air, uh, 
Um, and of course, you know, we met a couple of years ago at the PJ show for the first time. And uh, I think we're kind of on the same page about a lot of things, you know, when it comes to golf. Obviously, as instructors, we want to do what we can to help our students become their best. But I think we have a, a genuine love of the game and, and just an enjoyment of, of everything uh, about it. And uh, we always try to do our best to, uh, as I said, make things um, a little bit easier for the folks out there. So uh, I've got a, a, a few tips here, uh, 10, and we'll try to get through them all here if we can. Um, some, of course, are, are very common we've spoken about before, but we're going to maybe put a little different twist on a few of them. Um, and these are designed to obviously help improve uh, our amateurs out there, help improve their game. And I think the first one, John, that I want you to talk about, and, and again, uh, this is a special coach's corner. Normally we have a, a couple of others on the panel with us, but uh, uh, unfortunately we had uh, cancellation last minute, and uh, so I'm happy to have John uh, on the special uh, edition, if you will, of, of Coach's Corner. So the two of us are going to try to uh, go through some of these together. Um, so the first one, John, is I think one of the first and uh, foremost areas is to identify uh, your weakness. And I'm referring to, of course, students. Uh, we all have good and bad parts of our game, uh, and I think it's important uh, for them to be able to identify that. And I always recommend that they do that with a professional such as yourself um, in order to get uh, a more accurate reading, if you will, as to where they're at. So what do you like to do, John, especially um, maybe give an example if, if you're working with a new student or even existing student, what you do or what's the process that you go through to help them identify some of their weak areas? Well, first of all, Ted, thank you again for having me on the show. As always, I really appreciate the opportunity. And to all the mothers out there, I want to echo Ted's remarks. I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day, and hopefully you can play some golf this uh, this Sunday uh, with your family or do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, I, uh, You know, this question is, is really one that is very important uh, because um, when you're looking at improving, the first thing that you need to do is identify uh, your weakness in, in the game of golf because we have so many different aspects of the game. You have the full swing and the short game and putting and chipping and course management. There's just so many things that that um, that apply. And so what I always try to make sure that my students are doing is I want them to keep their stats, and it starts with putting. The first thing that, um, you know, I get people and they say, you know, I shot a you know, a hundred or or a ninety-five, and they shoot a score that they they really didn't uh, desire, and they're normally usually shooting in the high eighties or the low nineties, and and so I say, well, have you counted your putts first of all? And they quite often have no idea what I'm talking about, and and so I try to explain to them that you know that putting is going to make up anywhere from forty to fifty, and if you're a bad putter, can make up even sixty percent of your score on a particular hole if you're being honest with yourself and you're putting everything out. And so many times we see this as instructors, a student will get on the green in two or three shots, but then they'll take three or four shots to get it in the hole. And they think that they're, that it's a full swing issue. In reality, if they can learn to have better distance control and be a better putter, then that's going to be the fastest way for them to lower their scores. And then, um, you know, for example, today I had a, a lesson. I was working with a very good junior player, and he is aware of things like putting and, and stats like that. And so what we would do during the lesson is I gave him a fairway, and I said, all right, we're going to hit 
15 shots, and we're going to see how many balls you hit, you can hit in the fairway. And so he did that. And the first time he did it, he, he, he only got eight out of the 15. Now, eight out of 15 is not terrible, uh, but he was a little disappointed and wanted to do it again. And the second time, he got 13 out of 15 in there. So by and this was you know this just happened today. It was it was in about a 15 or 20 minute portion of the lesson we were able to really you know hone in a particular part of the game that he wanted to work on and and it gave him a kind of a challenge inside of the lesson. So if you're a better player out there, uh, you want to be looking at proximity to the hole. You want to be looking at you know your up and down percentages from bunkers, uh, up and down percentages, your scrambling percentage around the green. Um, if you're a newer player to the game, um, you know, obviously we all look at our score, but you also want to look at, um, you know, how many, uh, you know, how far are you hitting the ball? Are you hitting the ball in play? How many penalty shots? And then obviously how many putts? So I think that once you look at your stat, then you can, it's quite, it's quite um, evident. And so, what I have my students do is I say the next time you go out and play, I want you to keep, I want you to see how many fairways you hit. I want you to count your putts, you know, obviously your score, and then um, let's look at you know how many up and down, you know, your up and down percentage. And I'll have them bring me their scorecard, and then we'll go through the round. And and quite often they're shocked when they look at these numbers because the numbers inside of the numbers never lie. And um, and so when you look at those numbers inside of the numbers then as a teacher I can say, okay, we really need to work on, you know, putting or fairways or whatever it is that their weakness is. So I think that you have to do a little bit of accounting. You have to do a little bit of, of um, you, know, and, you know, a little bit of micromanagement of your, of your scorecard when you're done at the end of the round. And I would encourage the students out there, you don't need to worry about doing this as you're playing. You know, do this after the round because uh, I don't want someone to be so consumed with that stuff that they forget about you know, why they're out there. But at the end of the round, it's a great way to recap. And then uh, once you give that information to your teacher, uh, then you have you can set a plan from there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's important to um, to understand those numbers. And that's why I say it's, it's equally important that you want to work with a, a golf professional in your area. If you're not already, I you know, strongly recommend that you seek one out uh, that you're comfortable with. And and you know, obviously develop a relationship, and that way you can look at some of the areas, identify what those weaknesses are, and then it gives not only you a better idea, but the instructor a better idea of, of specific drills or, or areas of the game that they can focus on. Um, and you know, I think especially coming out, if you're somebody that's uh, you know, played golf for a few years, it's always good to have sort of an assessment done at the beginning of the year or a review, if you will, as to some of the fundamentals and things like that. Um, because again, a lot of times, especially if you're up in the Northeast or even Northwest and you've been kind of hibernating and obviously many of us, uh, have with the pandemic for, uh, the last year, but, uh, fortunately golf was, uh, one of the games that we were able to get out and, and, and do a little bit, um, with, with far less restrictions, but, uh, nevertheless, there's still a lot of folks because of climate and so forth that couldn't get out. So it's always important to do that. Um, so, gr uh, great answer, John. Thank you for that. Uh, the second one we've talked about. Um, a number of times on here. So I want to approach, this is one of the ones I want to approach a little bit differently, and that is developing a pre-shot routine. I don't want to so much go through because, again, it's unique to everybody. Everybody, there, there's, you know, common ones that we've seen many uh, folks do where uh, they go through certain steps and a lot of people sort of emulate that, and that's fine. 
Um, you want to develop one that's good for you. But I want to talk about just a little bit, John, about really um, why having a pre-shot routine uh, is is actually important to helping you to become a better player. I think a lot of people undersell that part of the process. They just focus on you know their ball striking and and of course putting and things like that. But having a good, solid, and repeatable pre-shot routine. If we watch the pros on TV, there's a reason why they do that. They wouldn't spend as much time honing a pre-shot routine if it wasn't an integral, important part of the game. So what are your thoughts? Well, I think that you've hit on something that's very important. And, you know, obviously we want to teach people how to play the game, not just hit balls on the driving range. And when you, when I see a student hitting, you know, ball after ball after ball, like in machine gun fashion, uh, I know that that's not going to, even if they do hit some good shots, that's not going to translate on the golf course because I've learned it the hard way. I just, I used to do that very same thing when I would go to the driving range. And, and so a routine is very important. One of the things that I really focus on is the time of the routine. Uh, and so what I do is I, I pull out my cell phone and get my stopwatch out on my cell phone, and I time the routine. And I, so I'll have a student – you know, I'll say, all right, you're a, you're 150 yards from the from the uh, from the pin. Um, you've got a shot over water. We'll be on the obviously on the diving range or whatever. And I kind of paint the picture of the particular shot. And then I'll say, I'm going to tell you when to start, and you start. And I want you to go through your entire routine. And so, you know, I, they've got their bag right there. You know, they pull their club out of the bag, and 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 then I time it. And then when after they've hit the shot, I stop the top. Stop the top uh, stopwatch and um, try to, and then I see what their time is. And then what I do again is, is I say, okay, the, I try to gauge that time to be somewhere between 15 and 20 seconds. That's from pulling the club out, making their practice swings, hitting their shot. Uh, what I don't want to see is them take 35 seconds on one shot and take 20 seconds on another shot, because what that tells me is, is they're putting importance on you know on certain shots and they're not taking the time on other shots i want it to be consistent time i've had students who take five or ten seconds to go through their routine and i've had students who take 40 seconds i think that's way too much time just because the rules of golf allow us like 45 seconds doesn't mean we have to use all those 45 seconds i think that if you can learn to be consistent with your time you learn to manage the steps in between. If you focus only on the steps and you're so focused on the steps, a lot of times you, you don't, you're not consistent with the time because what you have to rem- remember is, is practicing this on the driving range is going to eventually you have to be able to do this on the golf course. And so what we're all creatures of habit. And so uh, we know how it feels when, when we're late for work uh, we don't like that feeling. We don't like to rush and know that we've got to ha- hit every uh, green light to, to make it on time to work. Um, and then we also don't want to be standing there, you know, um, o- over playing with someone who plays plays extremely slow on the golf course and taking too much time. So the, the feelings that we have inside as human beings um, are often um, related to the – you know, how we are, are we creatures of habit? If we're creatures of habit and we have something that we do on a consistent basis, if we fall into that norm and what we normally do, we're, we're most likely to have success. But if we put ourselves in situations where we're not used to it and we're not, and we're confronting it for the first time and haven't practiced 
then that's when we fall apart on the golf course. And so I'm a big believer in, in you know, having the, the basics of, of a routine, you know, your target and your practice swing and, and, and that kind of stuff. But, but then I'm a real big, I'm, I really emphasize making sure that the student, you know, does it in the right appropriate time. And so often when the money's on the line, people take more time than they do when, they, when they're playing and they're playing well. Uh, they tend to overthink it. They tend to overanalyze. And, and, and what I find is, is it leads to tension. And once you get tense, your golf swing just falls apart or your putting stroke falls apart. So learning to do things, sticking to it, uh, and not overanalyzing things, uh, I think uh, really lends to uh, improvement on the golf, you know, when you're on the golf course. Yeah, and just just to, you know, add to that very quickly, um, and then we'll move on. You know, you, you raised an interesting point, you know, consistency. Um, and, and I also want to say rhythm as well. You know, we often hear about golfers getting in the zone. Uh, your pre-shot routine, believe it or not, helps you develop a rhythm, a uh, cadence, if you will, in how you play. And as you pointed out, John, if, if one time you're, you know, taking about 15 or, or 20 seconds uh, to do your pre-shot routine, and then the next time, you know, you're considerably longer or even shorter, a lot of times that puts you out of your rhythm. You're not in a, a, a a, a typical cadence, if you will, and that affects other areas of your game as well. So it's important to uh, develop a consistent pre-shot routine, and don't be afraid. Again, obviously you have more than 10 or 15 seconds to to work with, but if something is distracting you, don't just say, "Well, I'll just hit it anyways." You know, take a step back. You see the pros doing this all the time. They'll take a step back and they'll go through that pre-shot routine again because they're trying to get themselves back in rhythm. And you'll often see tour players, when they're not playing well, a lot of times if you watch their pre-shot routine, you'll notice that it, it's slightly different. It may not be to the normal eye, but you'll see sometimes it may be quicker or it may be slower uh, depending on the player. And a lot of times it's because they've gotten themselves out of sync. Uh, it's not always necessarily they just hit a bad shot. That happens, of course, but a lot of times they're out of rhythm or not in the zone at that particular time. So those are just some points to, uh, to consider when you're developing a pre-shot routine. And again, always work with your pro. They can help get one that's uh, designed specifically for uh, your needs and so forth. Uh, number three is club face control, John. This is an area as well uh, that a lot of players, you know, try to manipulate the club head, um, you know, through the hitting zone. They think that, well, if I flip my wrists or if I do this, uh, and that's not the best way. Explain a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, um, on really how we control the club face. Well, the club face is controlled, first of all, by the grip. Uh, anytime I see someone manipulate, the two manipulations that you see are, number one, the scooping manipulation mm -hmm. where you see someone's hands way behind the ball at impact. They hit them fat and thin. Most of the time, those students have too weak of a grip. Or we see the hold on where uh, the guy uh, or the girl will come through, and the, you know, when they're swinging and they're, they hold on and that opens the face up. Uh, it produces a block uh, or a slice. And a lot of times one of the hands is too strong. A lot of times it's their right hand uh, will be too strong in those situations. Sometimes it's the left. just depends. 
Um, but those are the two um, prevalent face manipulations that I see. Now, there's other reasons that people can manipulate the club. It can be their alignment. Um, I had a student today that I was working with who was um, pulling everything to the left because he was aiming well right of his target. So alignment also can, can produce uh, face manipulation. So it, the bottom line is, is when I see people manipulating the club face, I know that the problem is in the setup. It's not the swing it's as much as it is the setup. So either their grip is not right, their alignment's not right, or their ball position's not right. And so as a result, we have to manipulate the club face to fix those. So if you get, I've always said, if you get your ball position right, your grip right, and your distance from the ball and, and your alignment right, um, then everything else just falls right into place. And so um, I, I am always, whenever um, I see someone manipulating the club face, that's where I go to. Now, what's amazing to me is a, a lot of times when you watch uh, students diagnosing their swings, um, and, and it's so funny when you, when you do a lesson how many students come in and they already tell you, well, this is what I do. They start telling me everything that they're doing wrong and and um, it's so funny that they get right into the swing and they never talk about their grip they never talk about they never say I realize I have a weak grip or I realize I have a strong grip um, they start talking about all the effects and the I know what the effects are uh, and the golf ball knows what the effects are I want to get to the root of the problem I want to find the you know that root problem and it's it starts with those fundamentals so manipulation is just a way to uh, make up for something that you're not doing correctly in the setup. That's all that it is. And so if you, if you, for the students out there who feel themselves hold on through their swing or they feel themselves have that early release or that chicken wing that people, everyone talks about the chicken wing, if you'll get your grip right, your ball position right, and your alignment right, then those things will stop happening. They, they may happen some, but they will, you will start hitting better shots, and then from there, then you start working on, you know, the other aspects of the golf swing. So, so look at the, look at your, you know, those core setup fundamentals, and and the manipulation will be gone. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's predominantly why, you know, Jack Nicklaus, arguably one of the uh, all-time greatest players uh, in the game you know, always said that each season when he came out, that's what he worked on. He worked on his fundamentals. And, you, you know, you would think somebody of his caliber, why would he need to do that? He played at the highest level of the game. But he understood that, that sometimes when you've been at rest for a little while, you get a little rusty and you forget certain things or you make adjustments, you know, inadvertently. So he always worked on those things. He made sure that his, you know, his grip was the same all the time. His, you know, ball position was the same all the time and so on and so forth. And, he, you know, he went through that at the beginning of the season, and there was a reason why he did that. And that's why, again, he was, you know, uh, to this day, considered to be one of the best uh, players uh, of the game. All right, number four, John, is the rotation of your torso. Um, quite often, this is an area that we see uh, a lot of uh, amateur golfers struggle with. They tend to sway or slide uh, a lot, in some cases, in the backswing, and then obviously have to slide forward uh, in order to complete their follow-through. But it's actually a rotation of the body um, as you're loading up and unloading your, your golf. So maybe you can just touch a little bit on that. I know it's a little bit difficult when you can't see everything, but maybe you can just sort of 
you know, uh, give a little bit of a, a general idea of what we're talking about here? Well, the, there's so many things uh, about the rotation, and to me, this is the, the the most difficult part of the golf swing is getting your golf swing started. Um, and and so there's a couple things that I want for the listeners out there that will help them. Number one, and I'm going to speak as a right-handed player. Make sure that when you're when you're setting up to the ball, make sure that your right shoulder is lower than your left shoulder. Uh, if your shoulders are level, you are not going to be able to rotate. You are going to slide. Uh, I like to see the left hip slightly closer to the target than the left shoulder. So there's a little tilt of the torso to the right. So a lot of times what I have my students do is, is kind of get into a golf setup. You, I tell them don't even, you don't even need a club, so you don't need a club to do this kind of bend over and put your hands like where your knees are. So you're bent over and then take your right hand and just kind of put it on the side of your knee and, and tilt it down so your right shoulder drops down and your left shoulder right, raises up. And the actual your torso should tilt slightly to the right. Um, you don't want to have your shoulders level to the ground or parallel to the ground. You want to have that. So that's a big part of it. Um, then this, uh, another thing is, you know, I have my students just cross their their chest with their hands, again, no club, and just turn from there. And most of the time when I have people turn back, their head will move or their hips will move. And so um, that tells me that, that now we've got some core flexibility issues. So there's a lot of stuff on YouTube, uh, a lot of videos out there about, uh, from TPI, which I would recommend if you're having problems with this, it's very, you know, this is something that is a common mistake is the sliding of the hips that you mentioned. That is, especially in women, I see that a lot with women. And that's because women's center of gravity is lower than men's. So they're going to tend to sway their hips more often. So it's important that you uh, stabilize that lower body and then learn to turn the upper body. Now, a great drill to, to correct that slide and to get a better torso rotation in your backswing is to take out a pitching wedge, take your uh, right foot and cross it over your left foot and, and bend your knees and, and put the ball right in the middle of your stance between your feet because your feet are going to be touching and hit some small shots with your feet uh, crossed like that. Or you can put your feet together and hit some small shots. You can... You can still sway if you put your feet together, but if you take your right foot and cross it over your left and bend your knees, you, you, you cannot move your lower body. Now it forces you to use more of the upper body. I've actually got a, a drill on YouTube that if you go under um, and you put in John Decker um, right over left drill, uh, it's actually on, on there, that drill. And that's a great way to stretch out, loosen up when you get to the range. Uh, you're not trying to hit the ball real far. You're maybe uh, hitting the ball three-quarters of the distance that you normally would with a pitching wedge. But um, you will be amazed at how solid you start hitting the balls. Anytime I get someone who's swaying or over-swinging, I have them do that drill, and that immediately shortens their swing. It immediately tightens up their swing so they're not moving all over the place. But that is a very difficult thing to, 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 to um, create in the golf swing when your lower body is sliding, on, you know, uh, in, during the backswing, if your lower body is sliding. So that upper body rotation is very critical to the start of your golf swing and is, in my opinion, one of the most difficult things to, 
to master um, if you're if, if you're you know moving around. So it's important that you you know have a drill or something to work on to, to fix that. Yeah, and and just to add real quickly, um, you're you're exactly right on all points. Flexibility is a huge problem, especially for some of our senior golfers. I think this is where um, you know as we get older, we're, we don't have the same flexibility. Uh, as we once did, and a lot of times because we sit more often than we are out there moving as we get as again as we get older, you know when we 're younger we 're playing a lot of different sports and other activities, but as we age a little bit, you know we tend to slow down and also if you uh, work in an office environment where you 're sitting down most of the day, uh, you lose a lot of your flexibility, and that creates the tension and a lot of times doesn 't allow you to uh, rotate uh, your torso the way it should rotate in the golf swing. So we, we often make um, uh, sort of accommodations, if you will, by swaying or sliding a little bit because it's more comfortable. It feels better. Um, but a lot of times just some simple exercise, and I strongly recommend that you uh, seek out a, a golf fitness professional to help you there, um, somebody that's, again, you know, certified uh, you know, TPI or what have you, um, to really help you with that. Um, area because that uh, again can create a lot of issues uh, in, in trying to rotate your torso and that if you're uh, tightened up a little bit too much. All right, number five, John, and this is really more of a uh, what I like to do is a drill with a lot of students. You know, we all want to give the ball a good rip, and um, but a lot of times we, in doing so, we kind of get out of sync. So I always try to get my students to take a full swing, but at about half the speed. Um, Give me your thoughts on this, and then what I sort of to follow up on that, what I like to do is I'll have them do that for a little while and then gradually work up to uh, sort of a, a, a full full swing at a higher speed, if you will, um, that they would normally take. But I like to do this at half speed, and there's some advantages on uh, getting your timing in that. Maybe you could touch on a little bit of that. Well, it's funny that you, you – it seems like the question tonight are addressing all my lessons I had today because I had someone with that exact uh, issue, and uh, we were hitting into, on the driving range into the wind. So anytime – it's cool here in Ohio. It's, you know, it was about 60 degrees, and it was, the wind was blowing a little bit in our face. And instinctively, we all want to try to muscle it and hit it harder. I don't care who you are. That's uh, – that's a, a, a natural instinct. And so I told my student about my, my time at Grand Cypress and the story about Payne Stewart. Uh, when I was at Grand Cypress, I was watching Payne Stewart one day hitting seven irons from 100 yards to a green and landing the ball on the green. And, and I just couldn't believe it. I was like, why is he doing this? Why would someone be hitting a seven iron who's a tour player 100 yards when he could hit a seven iron 175 or 185 yards? Um, and so, um, but he did that to work on his tempo. He wanted to make full, complete swings at a much slower sw swing speed so that he could feel what he was trying to do. And then he obviously wanted to hit a ball because anyone can make really slow swings, you know, with an imaginary ball. But when you're actually trying to hit a ball and you're trying to actually make it go to a certain distance that's well under what you're used to, it forces you to. The average golfer, when I give them this drill, if they if they pull the seven iron out and I try to hit them, have them hit it 100 yards, they either can't get it in the air or they blast it way over the green because they're not used to 
swinging, you know, that slow. And so it really, it really is beneficial drill for someone who tries to force their golf swing. And that is a very common thing that we see. I see it a lot in junior golfers and I see it a lot in men where they try to overpower it with their arms and shoulders. And so that is an excellent way to, to practice. And it's an excellent way to warm up and it's quite, Mm -hmm. it's easy on your joints. You can do it for hours and uh, and quite frankly, I was watching him do that, um, you know, all the time. Every time I would see Payne Stewart, he was doing that, that drill. And so then one day I saw him out there with Brad Faxon, and they were having a contest, and Brad Faxon could not hit it on the green doing using the 7-iron from 100 yards, and Payne Stewart was hitting shot after shot. So I don't know what their side bet was, but um, I thought it was uh, pretty – I thought it was pretty interesting to see two tour players – hitting the ball 100 yards with seven irons. Uh, and one of them did it every day and was really good at it, and the other one wasn't uh, as, quite as accomplished because he probably just had never done it before. And so he was, you know, he was probably getting taken to the cleaners that day. But it was really, it, it really gave me as a young teaching professional, you know, watching really elite players, it made me realize that these guys, uh, they're playing with feel. They are not playing, you know, with, uh, you know, 12 swing thoughts. They're playing with a feel, and, and that's an excellent way to feel, you know, what, you, what, uh, what your golf swing, what you're trying to get the club head to do. You can start when you do, when you do those little exercises. I think it's a great way um, to practice. Yeah, and I think it's also good, um, again, it, it helps you really feel a sense of your timing and tempo of your swing, and, and again, you know, doing something like that, um, you know, you might be in a situation, believe it or not, where you might have to use that seven iron uh, as opposed to wedge if you're behind a tree or something and you have 100 yards to go and maybe you've got limbs that are hanging down. Um, you know, you might need a club like a seven iron to only go 100 yards. So, uh, again, that's, you know, rather than trying to finesse or or you know manipulate uh, a, a shot uh, just simply slowing down uh, maybe even to half speed or it might be slightly more depending on the shot um, and practicing that so that's another area too I think that's good for practice and uh, I always try to encourage my st- students to do that as well because again it helps with their tempo and timing um, the next one uh, number six uh, John is one that you know we hear a lot of is is power you know we want to belt it out there uh, you know, a mile, if you will, with our driver and that. Uh, but there, there really is a trick to getting more power. It's not just, you know, stepping on the throttle and trying to and really grind through the, the slot. Um, what's, what's the real key to power? Well, the, the first thing is I always go back to, you know, Jack Nicklaus and Golf My Way and what he said about the way he would swing the club is he would – stand on the driving range and he would hit sand wedges until he found a sand wedge feel. And then he would work his way all the way to the driver and he would try to make that same swing. So you're actually, he's trying to make the same swing with the sand wedge, but he just has a driver in his hand. A couple of things that the, that the law that from a technique standpoint uh, that you need to do, if you want more power, you, it's not about forcing the swing. Uh, you want the club head to do the work. The first thing you need to do is tee the ball high. You need to tee the ball high. You cannot tee the ball low and expect to be a long driver. Um, the second thing is, is you want to widen your stance. You want to be much wider than your shoulders. 
Um, you know, so you've got to have a wide stance. Uh, and then I always want my students to have that tilt where their upper body is behind the ball. They're not getting their upper body, you know, on the ball. Or a lot of times I see students have their head, if I were to draw a line straight up from the ball, their head would be right on that line. Their head should be to the, to, to the player's right for a right-handed player behind that line. Because that's going to help you to come in from a shallow, you're going to have a shallow angle of attack, and you're going to catch the ball slightly on the upswing. Um, you know, the, the long drive guys, if you watch the guys, the long drive guys, they're using five and six inch tees. They're hitting five to six degrees up on the ball uh, with, with like a two to three degree driver. So they're hitting up on the ball. They're not hitting down on the ball. And that is the most common mistake that we see as as instructors with the average golfers is they hit down on their driver too much that puts too much spin on their ball and they lose they lose distance what you want is ideally is you want a high launch angle with a low spin rate if you tee the ball high if you widen your stance if you if you do those things you're going to have a shallower angle of approach which means you're going to be hitting slightly up on the ball you're going to be able to launch it higher in the air with less spin. So that's the key for maximizing distance with the driver. The second thing, if you want distance in your irons, is you need to take more club. Who cares whether you hit your 7-iron or your 8-iron on the green? Uh, it's much easier to take more club and swing easier like we've talked about and not try to force it. And you'll actually get more more distance with your irons if you properly club yourself. And the mistake that students make is, is they play, they say, well, I hit my sand wedge, you know, 95 yards. Well, they might hit one out of 10 shots, 95 yards. But the, if you look at the average, their 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 sand wedge may only go 80 or 85 yards or 89 yards or whatever it is. They, you can't take the best shot you've ever hit downwind uh, with a flyer lie downhill. You can't use that yardage as your measuring stick. You've got to take the average. And so the best way to do this is out on the golf course with your own balls. Uh, if you do it with the driving range ball, most likely you're not going to get accurate, you know, measurements from that standpoint. So, you know, with range finders now, you look at your carry distance. You kind of look at the average of how far the ball is going. Um, and, and that'll help you in clubbing yourself. And just try to take a little more club than you normally would. And I think, you, uh, you know, all the golfers out there uh, would, would benefit by a little more club and a little less effort will give you more distance. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and one other quick tip I want to give uh, on power, and then we've got to move on. Uh, you know, we, we all – uh, see a lot of different training aids out there, but one I always found that is really, really good is something simple, and that is we've all seen this drill uh, where you take your driver and you turn it the other way around, so you're not gripping it by the handle, but you're gripping it just below the club head, and you're um, swinging it. Again, there's no ball or anything involved, and you're swinging, taking practice swings, and you're sort of listening for that sort of whoosh, if you will, or that swoosh at the bottom uh, where impact would be. But what what a lot of people don't do, and, and this is something I get a lot of my students, and I have to do it myself sometimes, I forget. Um, you know, if you're a right-handed player, you're swinging the same way all the time. And what happens is the muscles on that uh, one side of your body gets a little bit more developed. 
So what I try to do is I get my students to, again, take that driver, turn it the other way around, and maybe take 10 or 12 swings normally, again, for right-handed golfers, uh, you know, swing it normally, but then I have them turn it around and swing the other way as though they were a left-handed player. And what that does is it actually helps you sort of balance out a little bit. And what that does for power is it balances your the muscles in your body. If you do it, you know, obviously not one time, it's not going to happen. But over time, if you do that, every time you go out and practice uh, and warm up, if you do it both ways, it helps sort of balance out your muscles and it actually gives you more strength. It's better than going out and lifting a bunch of weights and, and trying to do it that way because this is what happens with a lot of golfers is that they play one way all the time their whole life. Their muscles get developed swinging that way and their muscles that would normally help them the other way are a little bit weaker. So that helps strengths your whole core and your whole uh, body up, if you will. And I found that to be a very f- effective drill to help increase power as well. So just a thought, uh, try that, see how it works for you. Um, I'm going to combine these two again for time because uh, we've got a few more here left. I'm going to combine these two, seven and eight. Seven is spend more time putting. Of course, we're talking about in a practice session and then developing a routine for putting. Uh, we have one for the full swing and and uh, and whatnot, but we should also have a routine for putting. So John, maybe touch on that. Um, maybe give us an example if, if we're... In a practice session, um, whether it be 30 minutes or an hour, let's say, if we're we're at a practice session, how much time should we dedicate to putting? And if we're just warming up before a round, maybe, uh, you know, 15 minutes before, how much time there should we spend, do you think, uh, on the putting side of things and uh, about a routine for putting as well? Well, I think from a a time standpoint, you know, obviously if you're practicing – um, you know, you want to be able to spend as much time on putting as possible because it, it is, like I said earlier, it's the fastest way to, to lower your scores as becoming a better putter. Um, you know, I always say, tell my students a good rule of thumb is if you have an hour to practice, half of it needs to be on your full swing and half of it needs to be on your short game. Now, your short game is a lot of subjects. It's, you know, putting, chipping, pitching, bunker. There's, there's a lot. So if you could spend, you know, in that hour, if you could spend – you know, 15 minutes of that uh, half hour that you have for a short game and then 15 minutes touching upon the other, then that's a pretty good overall, you know, where you're touching upon all the subjects. That would be a pretty good breakdown. But but I think I realistically, if you really want to be better, um, you need to be spending, you know, 20 to 30 minutes um, of your practice session, if you can, on putting alone because it's so important. And, and it's just – it's a shot that – it's unavoidable. It's not – I mean, I can go around a golf course and maybe only go in one or two bunkers all day long, but I, I'm, I'm going to be on the green on 18 holes. So you have to be able to putt. Um, and then as far as, um, you know, a routine goes, it's important that you do some basic things, four basic things. Number one is you want to see the putt. You want to pick a target. Every putt in golf is a straight putt. You hit it straight, and then gravity takes over. Okay, so you have to understand that if a putt's breaking four inches from right to left, you're still trying to hit a straight putt four inches right of the hole, and then you want gravity to take over. Now, obviously, the speed of that putt is important because if you hit it too hard, it won't break enough. If you hit it too easy, it'll break too much. So the speed part is the is the hard part. So what I have my students do is putt to the fringe from about 20 to 30 feet to get the speed down first 
And then as far as the routine goes, we pick a target first. The second thing that I want them to do is rehearse the stroke. The putting, to have a good putting routine, you need to make practice strokes. And you're not making the practice strokes, you know, just because I say make the practice strokes. You're making the practice strokes so that you can actually feel the putt. Because you might have a three-foot putt or you might have a 30-foot putt. Those practice strokes are going to be totally different. And then once you, once you feel it, and people say, well, when do you feel it? Well, I, it depends on the putt. If it's a, if it's an uphill four-footer, I might feel it after one or two practice strokes. If it's a 50-footer with three breaks in it, I'm, I might have to make eight or ten practice strokes. So, you know, that's, a, that's an important as well. And then, then as far as the routine goes, you, you see the putt, you feel it, then you do it. You actually step in and then, you know, your last aim the club face, you look at the hole, look back at, you know, get your feet lined up, look back at the ball, and then you make your stroke. And then you trust all of the above. So you see it, you feel it, you do it, and you trust it. The last thing I want to say about a routine is your putting routine starts before you ever get on the green. As soon as my ball is on the green, whether I chipped it on the green or I hit it from 200 yards on the green, as soon as my ball is on the green, I'm already assessing whether I have an uphill putt, a downhill putt, a right to left, or a left to right. So I'm, I'm already assessing in my mind because as I approach the green, I, if I'm walking or if I'm riding in a cart, I'm looking at the green from 100 yards out. Um, I'm looking at as I come up and approach it. As other people hit their shots on the green, I'm watching their ball to see, wow, that ball, did you see that ball kind of roll back down that slope? Or, you know, did you see how it, when it hit the green it stopped? That's a really uphill putt or slow putt. So, you know, or if, my, if the ball hits the green and bounces over the green, go, wow, that green's really hard. I'm already assessing these things before I get there. So my routine doesn't start when I'm getting ready to putt. It starts before I ever get to the green. And that's what most people don't do is they don't pay attention to those little things that will help them. Uh, you know, so if you're playing a golf course for the first time, you're not going to know the slopes of the greens. you got to – Really, as you're driving up to the to the hole, you've got to really start paying attention to those little nuances, and those little things, those little tips are really going to help you save some strokes uh, if you pay attention. Yeah, some great advice, and you know, we certainly can't emphasize enough the importance of working on all of your short game, obviously, because that's the scoring part of your game. Um, more often than not, many of our, our club golfers and amateurs uh, go out there and they're focused on how far they can hit it all the time. Uh, certainly, you know, distance is going to help you. Um, accuracy, obviously, is, is uh, equally important. Uh, but dialing in on that short game is going to save you a, a lot of strokes. Um, and putting particularly um, can probably save you anywhere from four to six strokes around. Uh, you know, how many golfers do we see out there three-putting uh, on many holes and Whereas, uh, you know, uh, one putt or two putt uh, could, you know, on those, those difficult holes, um, you know, saving those few strokes, uh, again, four to six strokes around can make the difference of, you know, coming out of the 90s into the 80s and 80s into the 70s even. So, um, you know, working on those, developing a good routine for that and doing the steps, you know, John, that you just pointed out, I think is uh, going to be well on your way to success. All right. Uh, number nine is chipping. Uh, I don't want to focus on so much the technique, but this is another area too that really 
people need to hone in on a little bit because as we know ourselves, many of our, our amateur golfers have a tough time uh, hitting greens and regulation. A lot of times they either fall a little bit short or uh, go a little bit long and they're either in the first or second cut um, and maybe they're not in a good position to putt. Um, you know, they're sunk down a little bit in the, in the rough. Uh, so chipping becomes integral. And there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different techniques, um, depending on, on who you listen to. Um, but nevertheless, that's an area of the game as well that a lot of strokes get lost. So maybe just talk a, briefly a little bit about that, John. Sure. The, um, you know, this is a great question because you're exactly right, Ted. You could put a ball three yards off the green and you can have, you can be uh, on a tight lie, you can be an intermediate rough, or you could be where you can't even hardly see the ball. So, you know, there's all kind of different lines that you get, and obviously you have to practice different ones. Pipping is simply putting with a lofty you're using a, you know, a six iron, seven, eight, nine pitching wedge. You're you're basically treating it like a putter. You're hitting the ball on the green. It has maximum roll time and minimum air time. Uh, and so I only chip when I'm on the fairway or on the intermediate rough. I never chip from the primary rough. In the primary rough, you're going to need more loft. You're going to have to use your sand wedge, your possibly your gap wedge, but most likely your lob wedge. Either you, If you don't have a lob wedge, then your sand wedge. You're going to go to your most lofted club because your ball is most likely going to be sitting down in the grass, and you're going to have to play a much different type shot uh, where you're using your wrist and getting the club more up and down, and you're, getting, you know, you're, you're having a little bit of a strike at the bottom to pop the ball out. Uh, so if I'm in a situation when I'm teaching – um, I, you know, did this yesterday with one of my lessons. We went on the golf course, and I started out when she was a, um, you know, young girl that was learning to play the game, really good player. Um, we, we, I put some balls right off the edge of the green, and we were about three yards off the green, and she had about 20, uh, or she actually had 15 yards of green to work with, and she pulled out her lob wedge and hit the shot, and the ball came up well short of, her, of, the, of the hole. And so that was a great learning experience for her. I had her take out a seven iron and just kind of make a putting type motion like I talked about. And all of a sudden her ball landed about, I said, I want you to land the ball about a yard on the green here and let the ball run to the hole. Let the ball do the work. You, 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 you don't need to fly the ball to the hole. Let the ball roll to the hole. The, the golf ball is designed to roll as well as go in the air. So, um, you know, it's much easier to roll the ball to the hole if you can. So if you have green to work with, you know, I think chipping is a lost art. When I look at young players now, even some of the tour players, they all fall in love with their lob wedge. They want to spin it. They want to try to hit it in there really low and have a lot of spin on it. That is a very difficult way to, to play under pressure. Much easier to take a less lofty club and let the ball just kind of walk to the hole uh, for you. So that's that's the way I I try to teach my students, and um, and I think it's a you know I learned from Phil Rogers, who was one of the greatest chippers to ever play the game, and um, you know that was something that really stuck out with me in my time with him and um, using different clubs because you use different clubs out in the fairway. You use your seven mm-hmm. iron, eight iron, and nine iron when you're you know 130 or 150 yards from the green. Why not use different clubs around the green? You don't always have to use one club. 
Right, I- exactly. And and that's a great point, you know, that you talked about your student. You know, a lot of times we see where the pin is maybe in the back of the green and they've got a long ways to get there. And a lot of golfers, again, they see these pros on television, you know, hitting these uh, high lofted uh, clubs. And a lot of times they think, well, this is what I've got to do. And, you know, a, a lot of issues can, can come up and, or arise in there. And more often than not, they end up leaving it way short because they're hitting it very high and it's coming down and either checking or, or, or not, you know, going very far. And now they've got left themselves a really long putt, and that's where you get into the problems with three-putting. Um, you know, because now what happens is they, you know, instead of getting a little bit closer to the pin, they're now, you know, 15 feet or, or more in some cases uh, away from the hole. Now they've got to try to get down there uh, in two and, and um, sometimes even three just to make their par um, or, or even a bogey. So uh, some great advice. Uh, again, get out there and practice. Use some different clubs. Try uh, a lot of different things and don't just be emboldened to, to one particular club because I think you're going to find that, as you pointed out, that uh, using a variety of them, uh, you're always going to be faced with different shots. There's never going to be two shots exactly the same. So you want to see what works best under different conditions. And the last one, John, is one that we you know, kind of really, in an undertone way, alluded to really uh, throughout this whole discussion. And that is really to practice. Um, you know, you want to practice certainly wisely and not aimlessly. And I always say practice with a purpose um, because more often than not, John, we see a lot of golfers getting out there. As you mentioned earlier, it's like a, you know, you know, using a machine gun. They're just out there and just one shot after another, and they're not really putting any thought into it. So maybe just, you know, maybe even walk us through a little bit of what you do uh, in a practice session to kind of get warmed up and, um, and what you do and maybe a, a little bit more advanced session where you're spending more time working on some things. What can they do to make the most use of their time? Well, the, the best way to, to, um, to practice, whether you have 30 minutes or, um, you know, two hours. I mean, you may have a day off and you have the, the opportunity to go to your club or your local course and, and spend the day there. Maybe you can't play golf, but you have time to, to work on your game. Is to start out um, with, with obviously warming up. You need to warm up your muscles. And, uh, you know, that's important. That's the first thing I do is I get my body, especially on a day like today here in Ohio where it's a little bit cooler, um, you know, I actually did have a little bit of chance to practice a little bit. And the first thing I did is took a couple of clubs and we're swinging them back and forth. If you have a, if you have an orange whip, you want to warm up your muscles first. And then you want to start out with very small shots, you know, maybe hitting like, like five, 10 yard little pitch shots. Uh, and then you start progressing and, and going more and more. You start out with your most lofty club. You don't grab a seven iron. You don't start making full swings. If you do that, you are going to, um, first of all, there's a likelihood that you could injure yourself. But second of all, you're going to start off and and hit some poor shots right off the bat because you're not warmed up, and your confidence is going to go down immediately. Uh, It's always easier to get your confidence up when you do really small things, small shots first. A lot of tour players will begin their practice session hitting putts first. They'll go to the putting green, then they go chip, then they'll go pitch, then they'll go transition into the full swing, and then they'll come back and do putting again at the end, and then they go out and play. 
that is a very common kind of recipe. I've seen Tiger do that where, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Tiger will do that exact same thing. He'll, he'll putt and everything. He'll go to the range, do his work, and then he comes back to the putting green, and he goes to the first tee. That's a, that's, that's a great way to do it as well. But the, I love what you said, practice with a purpose. That's the first thing that you need to ask yourself is when, you, when you're on the driving range, why are you on the driving range? Are you on the driving range to warm up? Well, that's different. If I'm on the driving range to warm up, to go play a round of golf, then I don't need to be laying down a bunch of alignment sticks and, and uh, pulling out YouTube videos and watching, uh, filming my swing and looking at my swing. I need to be actually hitting shots that I'm going to be playing on the golf course. I need to be you know, getting my body uh, warmed up. I need to be hitting shots with steel. Am I there maybe after work and I've got a, a, a big match on the weekend and I'm, I'm on the driving range to, to work on my golf swing? Then I'm laying down the alignment sticks, maybe watching videos for my lesson or whatever it is, uh, you know, taking more, more of that approach. So there's, I think it's important that you ask yourself why you're there and stick to it. Um, don't, don't consider a lesson as practice. When you take a golf lesson, that is not practice. A lesson is when you take in information. So a lot of times I tell my students after the lesson is over, is take the five or ten minutes and just go over there and hit some shots without me around, try to digest it, or go hit some putts or do something along those lines so that you're not making it so analytical that, you, that you're playing like a robot. So practicing with a purpose, the first thing that you have to do is, is ask yourself, what is the purpose of me being here? And there's, there's a lot of reasons why you go to the driving range. You go to the driving range to take a lesson, you go to the driving range to practice, or you go to the driving range to warm up. So there's three reasons right there why you're there. You have to ask yourself, make sure that you stay in that mindset before you play golf or during a lesson or when you're working on your game. If you stay in the mindset, you'll get the most out of your time. Yeah, and it's, you know, as you said, it's it's very important that you differentiate the type of practice or uh, whether it's a warm-up or a practice. You don't want to, you know, just before you're about to play in your club event, uh, start messing or tinkering around with your golf swing out on the range. Um, that's just a recipe for disaster. So, you know, warm up a little bit, um, you know, using some of the examples that, that John has just given, and I think you'll find you'll be well on your way uh, to having um, a success on the, on the golf course, but more importantly, fun. This is something that a lot of golfers have struggled with for, for many, many years as they get too technical, they get you know, too much information, uh, you know, upstairs, if you will, in the brain box, and they're just not having fun anymore. And a lot of times, uh, this is what deters them from from coming out on the golf course. So just get out there and have fun and work on some of the things. And then when you do uh, get into a practice session, uh, whether it be with your coach or your teach professional, um, you know, they're going to help guide you uh, in, in some effective ways to, to practice when you're on your own as well. They'll give you some good tips and, and uh, clues as to what you can do. So, um, Great discussion tonight, John. I appreciate it as always. And uh, I'm going to give you just a, a moment if you want to let the folks know if they want to uh, reach out to you, um, how to do that, and also let them know how they can get a copy of your book. Well, thank you again, Ted, for having me on the show. And again, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Uh, I'm in the Columbus, Ohio er- area at the Medallion Club. So if you're in the Columbus area, you can uh, reach out to me on social media. 
um, or if you uh, want to do some online instruction, or um, if you want uh, interested in me coming and doing some public speaking, uh, the best way on social media is I under John Decker Golf Instruction. Uh, and again, I spell my first thing J-O-N. So if you go under John Decker Golf Instruction, you'll find me on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram. I have several hundred uh, videos on YouTube, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I hope the reader or the listeners out there will read uh, the Golf Tips magazine. Get a subscription. Um, to the magazine, um, and I have a feature every issue. It's called Fairways to Heaven. It's in that. And I also do some instructional um, uh, content as well, depending on the issue. Uh, and I'm, um, I'm really excited. And thank you, Ted, again, for that opportunity to um, be a part of the magazine. And then my book, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and on Walmart.com. Uh, you can get an ebook, or you can uh, hard copy or soft copy as well. But uh, again, Ted, thank you for all that you do uh, for giving golf professionals like myself an uh, opportunity to come on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it as well, John, and have a great weekend and much continued success, and I look forward to seeing you next time here on the show, and we'll talk to you real soon. Bye. All right, it was John Decker on uh, Coach's Corner. We're going to take just a quick, brief little uh, break here uh, to hear from Golf Tips Magazine, and then we'll be joined by my very special guest, Brandon Stukesbury. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, I'm joined this evening by a very special guest. He's actually uh, been uh, on Coach's Corner uh, a number of times over the years and also has been a guest. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Brandon Stukesbury. He is currently the head professional at the historic uh, Metairie uh, Country Club outside New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. Uh, he's also the author of The Putting Book, which we're going to talk about tonight, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. Um, and formerly, he was the director of instruction at the Idle Hour Club in Macon, Georgia, and the PGA Tour Academy in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, he has emerged as an industry leader and nationally recognized voice in the golf uh, instruction field. Uh, again, he uh, has an Amazon number one best-selling author of two books, The Wedge Book, uh, which was launched back in 2015, and now uh, his recent book, The Putter Book, uh, this year. Uh, they both have uh, solid in, uh, sold in excuse me, over a dozen countries worldwide and for the last 10 years has been consistently ranked among the top 10 uh, teachers in his state by Golf Digest and was part of the uh, magazine's elite best young teachers list. Uh, he's a three-time PGA Teacher of the Year award winner and a regular contributor in golf media around the world. So please welcome my very special guest, Brandon Stukesbury. Good evening, Brandon. Welcome. Ted, how are you, man? Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm, it's always a pleasure, and uh, you know, I can't wait for tonight. 
How are you doing? I'm I'm doing very well. Well, first off, uh, a couple of congratulations. Uh, you've made a change, and you're now the head golf professional at uh, it's uh, it's the Metairie. Is that pronounced correctly? Country Club. Just uh, Metairie. Metairie. I'm yeah. sorry. So so you don't uh, really say air, just Metairie. Yeah, that's the Canadian in me. I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little funny. Um, but it's uh, just outside of New Orleans, and you've taken that position uh, this season, and uh, I know you're going to do, uh, do very well there. Uh, wherever you are, you've always done extremely well, so I know you're excited about that. And then the second congratulations is on your new book, The Putter Book. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, a few years back, you came out with The Wedge Book, which did extremely well. Again, a, a number one best-selling uh, author, uh, and you just done a, a phenomenal job with that book, and now you come out with the Putter book. Um, so let's, before we get into the book a little bit, we're obviously not going to get into all of it because we want the folks to get out there and, and, uh, and get a copy, um, but what brought you to this? Obviously, the Wedge book was very successful, um, and I know you're a big proponent of the, of the short game. Uh, why did you decide to write this book, and what was it in general that you really wanted to get out there in this book. Well, I, I appreciate the, the the kind introduction and and, and the kind words. Um, you know, the putter book uh, really was never the plan. I mean, I always just imagined myself, uh, you know, writing one book, and particularly after the unexpected success that the wedge book had, um, I figured I was going to be a one and done, and. Uh, you know, the more I thought about it and the more the Wedge book sold and the longer it went on as, as, as number one in its category, I, I was encouraged by the people around me and, and my, you know, my comrades, if you will, in the industry that, that maybe, uh, you know, maybe I needed to keep the story going. Um, and finally, I sat down and had a conversation with my co-writer, Matt Rudy, who's a dear friend. And and he really encouraged me and said, you know, I think there's a chance that we can spread the word even further with the Wedge book if we put out, a, you know, a, a book on the other piece of the short game. Um, and so the putter book was born. Uh, it took a little longer to get out than it should have, and that was really on me. I just – I drug my feet a little bit. You know, the Wedge book came out in late 2015. I probably should have put the putter book out in maybe 2017 or early 2018, and it just uh, – just didn't happen that way, and so um, it was a little late coming out. But but look, it's meant to be a companion to the wedge book that really completes the story of short game. Um, the wedge book obviously is all about wedges, and I wrote that sort of as a a guide for someone who doesn't really know much about the world of of wedges. Um, it's a very different world than full swing and, and, and really a guide to take you from the edge of the green back out to about 35 or 40 yards. The putter book's written in the same vein. It's meant to be a, a 15,000 foot view of all things putting. And so mm. there are lots of things to putting that people have never considered, have never thought about. Um, what are the real skills involved in putting? How does club fitting play a role? How do you practice putting? How's the tool built? Why is the tool built the way it's built? Um, you know, how does setup influence motion and, and club fitting? And, and there's lots of things that people just don't know and haven't considered. And so I really wanted to, you know, to put a book out there to complete the to complete the package and to complete the story. And 
and I was happy with the way it came out. It came out uh, almost the exact same length as the wedge book. To be honest with you, that wasn't really on purpose. It just happened to, to be that way, and and we kept the you know we kept the cover and the images on the inside and the cover art in the same family. And I'm just I'm happy it's finally out, and I'm hoping I'm happy that people are are buying it and experiencing it, getting some great feedback. And so there's the story of the putter book. You know, it's really interesting, um, Brandon, because, you know, there, there's obviously been over the years a lot of books written. And one of the things I, I really like about this book is you provide a lot of information, yet at the same time you make it simple enough and easy for people to understand. And the reason why I say that is, is as I know you're aware, um, last year I took over Golf Tips magazine. And... One of the comments that I've received a number of times from a number of the subscribers is that they want to, you know, they want things in a simple fashion. They don't want things too complicated. They don't want to, you know, get into a lot of theories and a lot of this and a lot of that. Um, They just want to know what can I do to improve, you know, whatever area of game that they're having difficulties with. And as I said, you you provided a lot of uh, meat, if you will, in this book but you've done it in such a way that it's very easy to understand um, for those that maybe don't want a lot of information. So, you know, to answer, uh, or I guess to follow up on something that you said a few moments ago, you know, you wish you had have gotten it out a little bit sooner. I think really the timing is right because you, you didn't want to put it out too soon without really going over the different steps and different things that you wanted to get in there and making sure that you were doing just that, putting it out there so that everybody that reads it is going to understand from the, the more seasoned veterans of the game to somebody, maybe a novice or beginner to the game, is going to be able to pick up your book and understand it uh, with the same uh, degree of, of ease as somebody who's played the game for maybe you know, 20 or 30 years. And I want to, I want to get into uh, a little bit of the book. Obviously, we're not going to cover it all because, uh, again, we want people to get out there and buy it and read it for themselves. But in Chapter 1, which you titled The Beginning, you get right in uh, after a few paragraphs and you talk about uh, you know, myth busting. Talk about some of the myths that are out there and why you wanted to cover those. Well, that's a great question. I, you know, it, 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 being on the teaching tee every day and being around club golfers every day, you, know, you, you hear all these things. Um, I'll give you a great one that, that has always stood out for me, particularly um, or particular to green reading. Um, I used to work at TPC Las Vegas, and we would have these gentlemen that would be starters or marshals, you might call them, being a resort club and very busy, and you know, and 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 folks, um, you know, being packed on the tee sheet. It was important to stay on time, and it was important to sort of let people know what the rules of the day were. And so these guys would stand on the first tee and. And they were awesome. You know, they were, they'd been around the game all their life and, and were nice to people. And, you know, and it, it was just, it was a nice touch, I think, to have somebody to talk to on the first tee after you paid all this money to play this golf course. And I used to hear them, they were right beside my academy. The first tee was right beside my academy. And I used to hear these guys say all the time, um, you could see the strip from the first tee, right? Everything in Vegas sort of is in a valley. And then as you go out to the edges, it elevates. And so you can look down and see the strip. And I would always hear them tell these guys, you know, and I remember guys, you know, if, if there's ever a question about the read of the putt, everything breaks to the strip. 
Mm-hmm. And, and inevitably, the tourists would be like, oh, thank you, man. That's, that's helpful. That's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard, right? Um, but 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 pe- pe- people people you know hey everything breaks to the ocean, everything breaks to the water. It's like if a green is beside an ocean, everything breaks to the ocean. Well, that's just not true. I mean that's crazy, right? right? Um, that's an example of a myth, right? I, I'll, I'll give you an example of another myth. I hear it all the time. You know, um, people will people will will do something in you know in putting. And I'll hear their buddy giving them golf instruction, which is always hilarious mm. to listen to. Right, um, right. You know, on, on on the putting green, and and I can't tell you how many times I hear, "Well, yeah, I mean that looks fine. I mean as long as it feels good, you know, don't worry about it." That's the craziest thing I've ever heard, Ted. Like, right. like, what if you came to me for a golf lesson and you showed me this funky motion, right? That that you know is the reason you're a 25 handicap. And you were paying me money, and I looked at you and said, oh, man, it doesn't matter as long as it feels good. That's crazy, right? There's another <laughs> example of a myth. It does matter. It's not just about how it feels, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, an, an, another is that um, – I'll give you, you know, one more – is that, um, you know, the, the, the grip, the size of the grip – influences somehow how much or how little your hands work in the putting stroke. It's just not true, right? I mean, if you're going <laughs> right. to if you're going to use your hands too much in the stroke, you're going to use your hands too much in the stroke whether it, it it's the size of a cucumber or whether it's the size of a pencil, right? right. Um, you know, your mechanics are dysfunctional. And so the the idea that somehow changing the putter, and we see it all the time, right? You know, we got this guy. You, everybody that's listening to this tonight is going to have this guy at their club or in their group that shows up about every three weeks with a different putter, right? And they've got them right. in their closet or their garage, and they rotate them. And you go, wait a minute, that's a different putter, Jimmy. He goes, yeah, I know. I was putting bad with the other one, so I'm trying. You know, I just, I, you know, I just, I put this down and hit a few putts on the rug in the garage last night, and everything went in, so I changed to it. Let's go back and say that again slowly, right? Like the idea that changing the the weapon is somehow going to make up for dysfunctional mechanics is hilarious, right? But but that's right. what we do as golfers. That's that's and so those are the kinds of myths, you know, that 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 I try to really iron out and point out. And I you know I talk about briefly. I'll just tell you, you know, I talk about the three skills. You might could call them four. Um, I talk about a fourth in the book, but really the three skills of putting, and in no particular order, can you choose the spot, which would be green reading, that you're supposed Mm -hmm. to hit it at? Can you actually hit it at that spot? That would be start line control. Can you control the line that the putt starts on when you hit it? And third, can you control the speed? Let me tell you something. Mm -hmm. You can do those three things you're going to be a really good putter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I don't care what level you play at, whether it's club golf or whether it's on the PGA Tour. And, you know, and so, so here's an example of another myth. Notice I didn't talk about alignment in those mm-hmm. three skills. That's because alignment's not a skill. Alignment is a preference, okay? Now, do some people make mistakes because they have fat alignment? Yes, but I'm here to tell you, Somebody can have faulty alignment and still start the ball on the intended line every single time. 
And if you can do that, I would be nuts as a coach to change your alignment. Right. I mean, you right. look at and somebody so, like Jack. Right. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say that's an example of another myth, right? And so I try to lay those things out in the book and, 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 and take people through it and, and really give people information on what putting is all about. And that, that was that was kind of what I tried to do when I wrote it. You know, it's interesting, you know, when I was looking through, um, and, and thank you, by the way, for, for sending me uh, uh, some copies, and I just wanted on a side note, uh, I gave a, a couple of copies to uh, to uh, two gentlemen who uh, want to say, by the way, thank you. Uh, they love the book. Uh, they've been reading it and, and have really enjoyed it. So um, I, I gave them each a copy of your book and and uh, really enjoy it, and I've enjoyed it as well. Uh, you mentioned grip, and I want to talk about that because uh, in in chapter one, of course, you you identify uh, some common grips. And we're just going to talk about really uh, a, a couple of things. Um, you identify really what you consider to be a good grip and a bad grip. And I want to hit the bad grip first because I've seen, as I know you have, I've seen a, a lot of uh, of our club golfers, uh, golfers, excuse me, or our uh, amateur golfers make this mistake. And they grip their putter very similar to how they would, uh, you know, their wedge or, you know, their irons. And that just is not conducive for good putting. Tell us how you identify a good grip. And I know there are some variations that people use on the tours and stuff like that. But generally, um, what is it we're trying to accomplish? I mean, uh, with the grip. There are a couple of things that we want to accomplish, I know. Give us a, a general overview of what you're trying to accomplish when gripping a putter as opposed to uh, a club for a full swing. Yeah, so so the full swing grip is all about the accumulation of power, right? And so mm-hmm. we, we hold the grip across the base of our fingers, if we're doing it correctly. We hold the grip across the base of our fingers which creates some angle between our forearms and our wrists. And that angle helps us to hinge and unhinge our wrists as the club swings up and around our body and then down and into impact. And that hinging and unhinging action is very much an accumulator of power. It serves as a source of leverage that helps us to create speed all of those things we need in the full swing. Now, we do that at the at the expense of some accuracy, right, which is why golf mm-hmm. is hard, right, because you have to do both. You have right. to swing it fast and, and accurate. But we have to have that speed. We can't do it without it because the golf courses, no matter your level of play, you have to be able to hit the ball far enough to play, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in putting, none of it is about speed. I don't care how fast the putter lashes. Well, I'm not concerned with how fast you're able to swing the putter head. I am way more concerned with the accuracy at which you can deliver the face. So my real definition for a good grip versus a bad grip is the one that allows you to control the start line. Well, I should say control the face, which in turn controls the start line, right? Um, but there are a couple of big mistakes people make, and, and gripping the putter like they do the full swing is one of them because it creates that angle, and then you have accuracy problems. You can't control the face 
as well as you need to. And so you would be much better off holding the grip across your palm um, or palms. And so there's a picture in the book that sort of illustrates mm-hmm. this so that if you held the club shaft and your arm straight out in front of your chest, they would be on the same angle. The shaft would essentially be an extension of your arm. There would be no angle between the shaft and your forearm. And that is a perfect recipe for accuracy, not a recipe at all for speed, but right. a beautiful recipe for accuracy. And so, you know, I, I have a preferred grip, um, but I'm less concerned with how you grip it and more concerned with your ability to accurately control the rotation of the putter face and the path that the putter face swings on. And that's influenced heavily by where the grip is relative to the angle of the forearms. And so that's a little tough to explain without seeing the picture, but hopefully that makes sure. some sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And uh, again, that's one of the reasons we want people to get out and, and get a copy of the book uh, themselves. And we'll tell you how to do that uh, a little bit later on. But, you know, I mentioned a few moments ago, you know, we see a lot of different putting styles on, on the PJ Tour and the LPJ Tour uh, and uh, a lot of different grips and, and so on and so forth. The one thing that people have to understand, it's not that it's impossible to do um, what some of these other players are doing, uh, but I think the main reason you want them, uh, and I'm referring to again to the amateurs, to sort of ad- adapt a a better grip as opposed to doing what they see on television is the difference is most amateurs aren't spending, you know, four or five or six days a week playing golf and practicing. Um, They're lucky if they get out once a week to practice, they might play once, maybe twice a week. Um, And if they're trying to, you know, use bad technique, then because they're not out there working, you know, I'll give you a good example. Nicholas, um, you know, had a, a, again, a different putting grip, um, than maybe what you might like. Uh, he op- had a lot of times he would stand with a slightly open stance uh, on his putting, but he worked on that um, for so long that he was able to putt very effectively. Uh, if he was doing that in a, in a you know once in a blue moon golfer, it wouldn't be as effective. Uh, I don't believe, anyways. Maybe I'm wrong, but so I mean, you know, technique is extremely important, especially for somebody. Um, that doesn't play a lot, you want to get things right right from the very beginning. Something else I, w- I want to mention uh, as we move on here, uh, Brandon, uh, you mentioned about speed control um, in the book as well in one of the chapters. Touch on that a little bit, um, what you're talking about and how people can get control over the speed of their putts. Yeah, well, when I talk about speed control, what I'm really talking about is your ability to control the distance the ball rolls, right? Mm -hmm. And so you you could swap in the term distance control for speed control. But the reason I call it speed control is because the distance the ball rolls is directly corresponding to how fast or the velocity, if you will, of the putter head as it moves into the strike. And, of course, we hold the putter, and so, therefore, our motion controls the speed of the putter head, which in turn controls how far the ball rolls. And so speed control is a huge one um, because 
a huge one for most amateurs that will play this game because traditionally um, anybody with a handicap that's over 10, let's call it a double-digit handicap, usually will average a couple, if not three or even four, um, three putts per round. And that's a given shots away. Yep. Um, it's an easy thing to learn how to not do, but people don't really know how to work on speed control. And so it's one of the three main skills, the ability to control the speed. And so I go through in the book a couple different ways you can assess speed control and a couple different ways you can actually practice and improve specifically on speed control and no, just walking out on the putting green and throwing down a couple balls and hitting them in the same hole is not working on speed control, which is the extent of most people's practice. And, you know, we're voice only here, but I'm making air quotes when I say practice, right? Right. <laughs> um, that's the extent of what most people do. And so speed control is important because not only does it factor into the three putts to where most amateurs lose golf shots, but it also has a huge component on – the other elements of the putt, right? And so briefly, I would mm -hmm. say this. If you think about the three skills as an equation, skill A, start line control or, or green reading, skill B, start line control, skill C, distance or speed control, A plus B plus C equals a made putt. If you are deficient in one of the skills, then you have to steal some from the other skill to try to make up for the fact that it wasn't there. For example, if you have a foot, if you have a putt that breaks a foot left, hypothetically, and you mm -hmm. have underread that putt, and you're only aiming six inches outside the cup instead of a foot, can that putt still go in? Absolutely, it can. But you're going to have to change something. You're right. either going to have to push the start line control or the start line much higher than where you planned, or you're going to have to hit it harder so that it doesn't break as much. So that's a good example of using some of, of another skill or more of one skill to make up for the fact that the other skill is missing. Well, speed control plays an important role in all of them, right? Because you, mm -hmm. you read your green or you, you read the green based on a certain speed, and if the speed doesn't match that read, ball's not going in, or it has yep. a much less chance of going in. And so speed control is important because it's one of the three skills, but it's also important to most amateurs because it's the sole, the sole reason for the loss of usually two, if not four shots in any round of golf because of three-putt percentage. You know, and that applies in the, in the long game as well. You know, um, we see many times players, um, you know, manipulating the club head or um, doing something to make up for something that they've done wrong. You know, if they're not set up correctly, they have to adjust. And, you know, obviously the same thing applies in putting. You know, if you're not set up correctly or if you're not, um, you know, if you're not, your speed is not just so then something else has to give in order to be able to accomplish the task at hand. And this is why, you know, we can't emphasize, we're going to talk about this in a moment, but, you know, why practice is, is important. I want to jump to uh, Chapter 5 in the book, 
where you talk about the mental game. Give us a little idea of what you're talking about here. Well, attitude is what I call the fourth skill, right? And and it's sort of Mm -hmm. got an asterisk beside it. And here's why, because the other three skills can be measured. They can be diagnostically measured to see where your proficiency lies. And then based on how proficient or not you are in those skills, things can be done to improve them, focusing solely on that skill. Attitude can't be measured. But I will tell you this. If your attitude isn't right, and I'll talk about what right means in a second. If your attitude Mm -hmm. isn't right or correct, you will never be a good putter. Never be a good putter. Because Mm -hmm. you cannot putt with doubt. Doubt in your stroke, doubt in your score, doubt in your ability to control the speed, concern that you haven't read enough, break, concern that there's water behind the hole and you're worried about it rolling off the back of the green, concern for the person that just made birdie behind you, or concern for the (laughs) fact that you've got to make sure not three putt because you'll lose it. Whatever your concern, you cannot putt with doubt. So I have this saying that I keep threatening I'm going to trademark. Um, Most of the time when you have quotes, you steal quotes from somebody else. I made this one up, right? Um, Mm. At least I think I did. Uh, And so I say this to students all the time. Confidence can't be earned. It has to be owned on a putting Mm. green. Here's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. Statistically, most people don't know this, right? But I, but I always share this when I'm doing an interview about the book because I think it's really eye-opening for a lot of amateur golfers that don't understand what putting is. When I ask the question to most of my students or, or most people that I talk about this to, if they were to give me the percentage of putts that the average tour player makes from 15 feet, okay, 15 feet is not that far away. Okay? Right. From 15 feet, the average tour player, here's another way to say that, the best putters walking planet Earth. That's what they are, right? Tour players. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What percentage out of 100 do they make? Now, you probably know the answer to this, Ted, but most people give me this percentage that's just crazy, right? 60, 70, 80%. That number, that real number, bounces around 26% year right. in and year out. The best putters on the planet make one in four from 15 Mm -hmm. feet. Now, here's my point. Statistically, we're terrible putters, all of us. Right. Terrible putters, right? If the best in the world only make one in four from 15 feet, statistically, we will miss way more putts than we will ever make. If you're (laughs) sitting around waiting to make putts before you can be confident that you can make putts, you're doomed. Right. Because you will never make enough putts to ever be confident that you can. Statistically, you just won't. So confidence cannot be earned. It has to be owned. You have to believe that you are a good putter. Yes, making putts helps that belief, but you have to have the attitude when you go out there that every putt you're going to hit has a chance to go in. Mm -hmm. You know it won't go in every time. Mm -hmm. 
Right. But you have to honestly believe that you've done everything that you can do and you're getting ready to make a stroke that's really solid and really good. Therefore, ergo, it has a really good chance to go in. And if you can't putt that way, if that's not your attitude, you will struggle with putting forever. And it doesn't matter how good your mechanics are. And so that's a taste of what I mean by the mental game and, and the effect that that confidence has on you, you know, positive, excuse me, <laughs> positively if you have it, negatively if you don't. And I really kind of dive into it. I tell a story that I went through with one of my, you know, one of my current students who uh, many years mm-hmm. ago, but, you know, and, and, and how I taught him and how he had a confidence issue. And, and we kind of dig into that. But that's a little bit of a taste of what I talk about in that chapter on mental game. You know, and, and Brandon, that's an excellent point because, you know, not just in putting, but in other areas of the game as well, um, you know, if you go in with no confidence, and, and this is why we encourage people to get out there and practice and work on the various different areas of your game because it helps to develop confidence. And and just to prove your point, you know, when you talk about just, you know, giving yourself a chance for that ball to go in. You know, I've heard many tour players say that. You know, they know that they're not going to make every single putt, but they want to give themselves the chance, to, you know, to make that ball go in. And, again, it's because they have um, a, a good confidence in the skills that they develop. They, again, they know one out of every four shots uh, is what they're likely going to happen um, more often than not. But the fact that they're confident enough to believe that they've got a good chance at that putt. Tiger, I've heard him say that in many interviews uh, over the years. He knows that he's not going to get every single putt in there. But in his mind, he's developed a confidence that he trusts his stroke. He trusts all of the different components uh, of his putting game um, that he knows at the very least he has a chance for every putt to go in. And um, when you come to the the putting green with that confidence, um, it makes a world of difference as you pointed out. And so that's a great, you know, it's something that you're right. A lot of people don't think about, um, when it comes to putting, but it's a great chapter and, and, um, you know, and, and I, I like the fact uh, of how you're approaching it, um, really sort of drives that point home. And, and again, most people don't realize really that the best of the best are only, you know, making it 26, you know, plus uh, percent of the time. So for us to think that we're going to make it, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of the time uh, is not realistic based on the statistics of, of the best players in the world. I want to go yeah, to I mean, the next eight, chapter. Eight feet, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Just, 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 just to drive that point home, eight feet is the 50-50 mark on tour. Right, right. They make as many as they miss. From eight feet. Right. Most people are surprised to also hear that from about 32 or 33 feet, they're as likely to three putt as they are make it. Now, hmm. the, the trouble with statistics, and then I'll we'll, we'll move on to your next topic. The trouble with statistics is they're skewed by what we see on television, right? Sure. What we see on TV is a highlight reel. Right. Now, the guy that wins that week is putting better than 26% from 15 feet. That's why he's winning. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, and so, keep in mind that's an average, 
But but mm-hmm. we don't. I'm telling you, we, we 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 are not as good at putting as we think. Or the other way to look at that is putting is really really challenging, mm-hmm. really challenging. And so that's why that attitude and owning confidence as opposed to trying to earn it is so important. It's hard to do, but it's it's important and something that people need to work on consistently. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of areas that people could be. Um, working on that would benefit them, and that's certainly one of them. I want to go to Chapter 6, Getting Fit. You know, we always hear about getting fit um, for, uh, you know, the the other clubs in the bag, but a lot of people overlook the, the putter. Touch on that a little bit. Why is it important that we get fitted properly for the putter, and what should we be looking for? Yeah, that, there's a lot to unpack there. And so... Um, <laughs> What I would tell you is the reason you should get fit for the putter is because more than anywhere else in the game, the fit of the putter has more influence over how we move than anywhere else. Because in putting, our use of momentum and our use of speed generated from the muscles in our body are way, way less in putting than they are in the full swing. And so if we had a golf club that was a little bit heavy in the full swing or a little bit light in the full swing, you know, we we can sort of use some muscles or or use some the time and the length of the swing in the full swing to sort of move some things around and make some adjustments. We don't have that time or that swing length in putting to do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that more than even in the full swing, an inch worth of length on the putter, short or long, can put our bodies in such a position that it gets our eyes out of the right spot and tends to affect how we stand and how we stand has an effect on how our body moves relative to controlling the club that was a single club in the bag that we need to be the most accurate with. And by accurate, I mean accurate in the way in which we move it. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is if you have a green, right, a six to 7,000 square foot green, which would be a pretty average size green, I would, I would say, in reality – we don't care whether we hit the right side of that green or the left side of that green. Now, somebody might disagree with that, but really they don't care, right? They just don't want to hit right. in the bunker left or right or the water short or over the green long. Well, that could be a degree or two or three of difference in club face angle on the iron from the fairway mm-hmm. that could that could make the difference in the right side of the green or the left side of the green. Right. right. And, and all of those angles would be acceptable. If you are off by more than a degree, think about that now. If the club mm-hmm. face angle is off by more than a degree on a 10-foot putt, the ball won't go in the hole. So mm-hmm. we have to be way more accurate with a putter and how we deliver it than we do with an iron. Now, the good news is we get to go much slower in putting. 
speed-wise relative than we do in right. iron. So it's easier to control, but it also means because the, the emphasis is so high on accuracy that any slight movement difference or the way we stand that influences the way we move can have a massive implication on our ability to be that accurate. And so club fitting is important in putting because it influences how we move more so in putting than anywhere else. And putting is the one place where we need it more or we need accuracy more than anywhere else. Um, and so that's the first thing I would say. Uh, you know, an inch of difference on an iron, you know, is not ideal, but but it can be sort of made up for in, in the length and the time of the swing. An inch of difference, long or short in putting, can wreak absolute havoc on your game. Yeah. Um, the second thing I'll say is, especially in terms of length when it comes to putter fitting, is it can have a massive implication on speed control as well because you start messing with the the swing weight of a putter and the swing weight of a putter as it as it moves from an inch long to an inch short uh, that gigantic swing and how heavy the head will feel which is what swing weight really is has a huge right. influence on your ability to control the speed of the putter as it moves through the strike. And we've already talked about how important having control over the speed is. So club fitting is a big deal. It is unfortunately often overlooked, and that's why I wrote a whole chapter about it. I wanted to try to educate folks as best I could on its importance and why they need to do it. And just very quickly, um, you also addressed in here putting styles. That's not really as important. That's more of an aesthetics uh uh, for the individual golfer, uh, whether it's a blade or a mallet type, um, is that correct? I mean, it, that that part of it, as far as being fitted for a putter, isn't really as important. That's more personal preference, correct? Well, there, there's two there's two schools of thought out there, and I'm not here to degrade one school of thought or tell you that mine is better or theirs is worse. Um, but there's two schools of thought, and, and and one school of thought is that we're going to take what you do now. And we're going to try to fit a putter that that maximizes or optimizes your chances of controlling all the three skills, if you will, based on what you do now. And, and that might need to be a mallet or that might need to be a blade or that might need to be something. And the head shape and the style and the toe flow and all those design characteristics matter because they influence all those things. Mm -hmm. That's one school of thought. In that school of thought, it, it, it does matter a lot what the shape of the head is or what the size is. The other school of thought is, is where I sit. I would rather teach you how to do it properly and have good mechanics. And if you have good mechanics, and you have control over the three skills, I'm less concerned about head shape. Right. And it becomes more personal preference, right? So I wouldn't go mm -hmm. as far as saying it's all about personal preference because a different head shape and a different head design can influence things. They can influence how your eyes see square on the putter face as a putter gets, um, let's call it narrower from face to back edge it tends to look different to folks um, when compared to a mallet, which is much wider or thicker from face edge to back edge. 
people tend to see square differently. And so um, I'm not going to say that it doesn't matter and that it's all personal preference, but I sit on the side that thinks that we need to learn proper mechanics and then we can fine tune with selected head shape based on how it might influence a little bit of how you see things and based on what you like to look at. Um, but there are two schools of thought, uh, and lots of people, you know, have taught students that have performed at a very high level following the first theory. Um, mm -hmm. But I've never been one to think that an inanimate object, meaning the putter, is somehow going to fix the deficiencies of the animate object that's making it move. <laughs> and so yep. I once had a, 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 I once had a mentor, I'll leave his name out, but he was giving a, he was giving a, a speech or a seminar on physical fitness and it's important and it's importance in golf. And he took a question from the audience that I thought was a pretty brash question. And they asked him something like, you know, uh, all these tour players, all these years, you know, uh, nobody ever cared about all that stuff, and they did just fine. You know, why do you suddenly think it's important? And he did something I'll never forget that was pretty brash of him at the time, but made for a classic moment. He And he was all mic'd up, and there were mics on the stage. He literally walked out to the middle of the stage. He stood a driver up, put it on the ground, and stood it up and held his finger on the top of the shaft, mm -hmm. right? And this driver mm -hmm. was standing straight up. And then he moved his finger. Well, of course, the driver fell over right. and made this loud crash with all the mics and everything. And he says, as long as we have to move in order to make that thing move, physical fitness is important. Right. And I thought, <laughs> wow. Right. I mean, that was powerful. Right. And it was kind of a, mm -hmm. it was kind of brash, you know, but it was powerful. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I tend to feel that way as long as we're making the putter move. You know, I don't know that changing the putter is somehow going to cover up weaknesses or deficiencies that we have, but I won't go as far as saying it doesn't have some influence. And so the, the important thing is having, having the knowledge and understanding of what the different putter shapes and styles tend to influence and then you can use those influences in whatever way you deem appropriate. For example, and then I'll, we can move on, if someone were having an issue um, with the toe of the putter opening and closing too much during the stroke, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, it was just a mistake that they had, and they always fought it, and it was a mechanical error that was prevalent. I could give them a putter that has less toe flow, um, and, and I, don't, I don't know that I could explain or that we have the time to explain toe flow, so if you don't know what that means, Google it, and, you, and you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out, right? But essentially, a putter whose face doesn't want to open and close as much during the stroke, I could give them that putter and use that particular characteristic of that design as a weapon to help me combat the problem that they have. That's an example of how I would use the characteristics of the design to help sort of influence the motion that I wanted. 
And so um, I, I probably went a lot deeper on that than you wanted, but I wouldn't go as far as saying it has no influence. Um, but but you know, it, 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 it is it, if you if you have good mechanics, it's way more of a preference than it actually is a tool that influences motion. Very interesting. Uh, I, I agree with that. You know, um, it, it, it's funny because it again going into the to the full swing um, and the long game, if you will. You know, a lot of players are more concerned about the equipment. Um, you know, having the latest driver um, before they even really understand the mechanics of the golf swing. And, it, you know, I think they overlook that um, quite a bit. So it's very interesting the way you've laid it out here. And obviously the, you've got more, much more detail in the book. Um, the last thing I want to cover, and, and I don't want necessarily, you know, specific drills and that, because, again, we want them to read the book. And, and um, But... Maybe you can give a general overview. The last chapter, uh, chapter seven, is how to practice. Um, you know, I'd like you to approach it from two areas. One is how much time, if we're doing a practice session, not a warm-up so much, but a practice session, how much time um, of that practice session do you recommend we spend or put towards our putting? Okay, you said there were two. You want me to answer that, and then we'll go back. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> the second one is if you wanted to give an example, that's fine. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so, so, so I'm going to give you two answers to that. I think in a perfect world, and I emphasize perfect world, um, you're keeping stats on your game, mm -hmm. and you know what parts of your game need work more than others. And the amount of time that you're spending on putting is directly related to how much putting is causing a problem in your game. Okay, meaning if my stats support or show that my iron play is the weakest link in my game and that uh, bunker play is next and driving is third and my putting is fourth, then I should be spending less time on putting than I am the other three. Okay, mm -hmm. most people don't keep stats. Most people don't have access to that information. That's how the professionals do it. They keep the stats and they analyze their game and they spend the amount of practice time relative to the percentage of its influence on how they play. Mm -hmm. So for most, most folks, I would, I would say do it this way. In any round of golf, 60% of your shots come from less than a full swing. I don't care whether you shoot 108 or 68. Okay, 60% of your shots, maybe 70% of your shots, come from less than a full swing. Okay, so let's mm -hmm. just say it's two-thirds. Let's call it 66%. Mm -hmm. Well, of, those, of that 66%, you could roughly argue that half of it's putting and half of it's short game. Roughly. Okay, this mm -hmm. is a rough way to look at it. So I would split my practice up that way. I would spend a third of my time on the full swing. I'd spend a third of my time on the wedges, and I'd spend a third of my time on putting in any given practice session. That's how I would answer that question. Now, I'm going to dive a little deeper because I dive a little deeper in the wedge book or in the putter book. There are three skills, as we've talked extensively about tonight, green reading, start mm -hmm. line control, and speed control. Your practice should touch on all three. So the 33% mm -hmm. of the time that you have to practice, let's say you're practicing for three hours, 
that's a long time to practice for any amateur golfer, but let's just for ease of argument. If you're mm-hmm. practicing three hours, you're going to spend an hour of practice time on your putting. Okay. That hour really needs to be broken up at a minimum in three different phases. And each of those three phases would be spent on one of the three skills. So some work specifically on start line control, some specific work on distance or, or speed control, and some specific work on green reading. You could make an argument you should divide it into four pieces and spend 25% of the time speed control, 25% distance control, 25% start line, and 25% on combining all three together, right? Um, mm-hmm. But hopefully that answers your question. That's how I would generally recommend most folks. Just spend a third of your total practice time on putting and then break that third into at least three pieces, one for each skill, and maybe four, the final fourth being time to combine the three skills. And I go through in the book ways to diagnostically analyze how you perform with each skill, and then I go through ways you can practice each specific skill. And so the book has enough information to tell you exactly how to make up that third of your total practice time on putting. And I do the same thing in the wedge book. So if you have both books, then you essentially have a way to generate 66% of the time that you're going to practice and know that that practice is going to be effective. Practice with a purpose, they always say. Um, Well, Brandon, I want to thank you, and I'm going to give you a moment here just to uh, wrap up with where the folks can go to get their hot little hands on this book. It is a great book. and I, I've not only enjoyed it myself, but as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I handed it out to a couple of gentlemen who uh, a little bit older and, and uh, found it very uh, informative and, and enjoyed the read as well. And again, thank you on their behalf. Um, but uh, well done. You guys uh, did a great job, uh, Brandon, and, and of course, Matthew Rudy, who obviously uh, uh, helped as well. Um, you guys did a great job on this book, and I think it's going to do as well, if not even better, uh, than the Wedge book. But uh, how can we uh, how can we uh, get a copy of this? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, you know, I sell the book on Amazon. Um, you can get it from me directly um, if if you want a signed copy. I'm happy to sign it and and mail it to you. Just reach out to me on my website. Um, Everything I have out there in the world of social media or online is all under Stooksbury Golf. Now, my last name is a little bit hard to spell, but one of the benefits of, of having a funny-to-spell last name is there aren't <laughs> any other ones out there. And so right. um, if you search Stooksbury Golf in Google, you're going to find me, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I'm more active on some of those channels than I am others um, I need to start putting some more content up on YouTube. It's going to happen soon. Some of the stuff I have on there is getting a little old. It's still good information, but um, let's just say my hair is a little different color now than it was in some of those videos. Um, and so I need to do some work there. But, but my website, everything out there is under Stoopsbury Golf. And so if you like the book or you want to read the book, go over to Amazon, grab yourself a copy. Um, please don't forget the review. For authors, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Um, and so if you do buy the book on Amazon, 
give me a review. If you hate it, tell me. If you love it, tell me. Um, and then if you want a signed copy, just reach out to me through my website. Um, send me, you know, there's plenty of contact me or click here for more information. Click, plenty of calls to action on the website where you can get a hold of me. Send me a message. Uh, we'll, we'll start a line of communication, and I can sign a book and drop it in the mail to you. Um, but Amazon's really the easiest and fastest way to get it, um, especially if you, you know, are a Prime member and, and, and get all that mm-hmm. quick shipping. Um, you can find both books there, um, the Wedge Book and the Putter Book. Very good. Well, Brandon, as always, it's a pleasure. Um, uh, it's been a little while since you've been on the show, and I'm going to have to wrangle you on some of the coaches' corner before the season ends. So hopefully uh, uh, you can uh, free up some time on, on a few Thursday nights and, and come in and join uh, some of our panel discussions. Again, we we'll always uh, enjoyed your input into the show. And uh, But uh, much continued success, uh, not only with the book, but also uh, with your new uh, venture out uh, in around the New Orleans area. I know that they're going to benefit greatly from your experience and um, have a great season, and thank you as always, and I look forward to you coming back, and we'll see. Maybe there's going to be another book down the road, and if so, I hope you come back and share it with my audience. Well, Ted, thanks so much. You've been a, you've been a friend for a while. I wish you all the best of luck with, with your endeavors in the magazine. I know I've been a, a friend of Golf Tips for a long time and look forward to, to continuing that friendship and Coach's Corner, and it's really – um, it's really an honor for me to be invited and, and for me to be on your show. So thank you very much for everything you do, not only for me, but for the game um, and for all the golfers out there and the information that's shared. I know almost everyone you have on every week. They're wonderful people. They're wonderful coaches. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I wish you the best of luck in, in, in spreading the word and, and getting people to tune in because you do good stuff. And so thanks again. Keep up the good work, and uh, I look forward to being back on soon. All right, Brandon, as always, thank you again. Have a great weekend. And guys, go to Amazon.com and check out the putter, uh, sorry, the putting, yes, the putter book, score, excuse me, on Amazon. You can get your copy there. All right, Brandon, have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Ted. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. All right, my very special guest, uh, Brandon Stukesbury. Uh, Again, you can go to StukesburyGolf.com, and it's spelled S-T-S-T. O-O-K-S-B-U-R-Y, golf.com. And uh, you can reach out to him there personally as well if you want a signed copy. And if you go to Amazon and look under the putter book, excuse me, the putter book, uh, you can order it uh, directly from Amazon.com. And uh, again, also a special thank you to John Decker for joining me on Coach's Corner a little bit earlier. Um, Always enjoy your input as well, John. All right. Be sure to join me next week here on Golf Talk Live. We'll have another uh, great panel discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by another great guest. I hope you'll tune in. We'll see you next week. God bless and have a great weekend. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.